Today's gospel reading begins with Jesus taking a few of his disciples up on the mountain. And shortly after they get to the top of the mountain, his face shined and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly Moses and Elijah showed up as well. Immediately Peter says that he would like to make three tents there, one for each of them. And while he was still speaking, a cloud came down and terrified them. And then a voice from heaven shouted, This is my son, my beloved, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they were overcome with fear and fell to the ground and when they looked up, Jesus was all alone. Shortly thereafter, they headed down the mountain. And then another story begins. A man had a child who was possessed by a demon, approached Jesus and said, Master, could you heal him? For I've asked your disciples, but they were unable to do anything. And Jesus groans, looks at his disciples, rolls his eyes, and offers healing to the boy. Two interesting stories that we're often not quite sure how they go together. And yet the church calendar has called today Transfiguration Sunday. Many of us approach this day with the same perspective that I approached these two readings out of the Gospel of Luke. We wonder, what does this even mean? I mean, transfiguration is not a word that we use in everyday speech. Make no mistake, transfiguration is a strange word. When I was a little boy, we would have spelling words that we would get in elementary school, and it would often be that you have to write a sentence with each of the spelling words. And from time to time, a word would come that I had no idea what it meant, and so I would write, what does so-and-so mean? Question mark. Needless to say, I got a number of frowny faces on my papers, but at the same time, I think that's what I would have done if the word transfiguration came before me. What does transfiguration mean? Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany heading into the season of Lent. The season of Epiphany uh, began with the baptism of Jesus and ends with the transfiguration of Jesus. And there's a relationship between the two because in the baptism of Jesus, we are invited to listen along with the crowd as the voice cries down from heaven, This is my Son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And in the transfiguration of Jesus, we are invited to listen alongside of the disciples as the voice from heaven announces, This is my Son, the beloved. Listen to him. Transfiguration also moves us towards Lent. As Jesus came down from the mountain, he begins heading toward the crucifixion. And the voice of God instructs the disciples, listen to him. And these words will be painful in the coming days and weeks ahead. 
As Jesus heads into the city of Jerusalem, as he is abandoned by his friends in his very time of need, as he is mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross, the disciples are told, listen to him. The transfiguration moves us toward Lent. And yet we're still left wondering what this entirely means. I mean, it is an interesting passage. Jesus' face shining and his clothes is turning bright white. But what does it mean? What is the application for us in our individual lives? How can we tie this passage into a nice little box and incorporate it into our nice little domesticated view of God? Asking these questions might in fact be the wrong. For this passage shatters our conceptualizations of God. This passage's meaning is beyond the way that we normally do church. This story challenges our over-rationalization of our faith. Everything is not explainable. God is beyond our comprehension. God is bigger than the boxes that we attempt to place God inside of. Christian theologian Karl Barth mentions when referring to God's revelation that our first inclination is to immediately define this revelation, put it in words, and then, once we do that, it's to stabilize it and then seal it off on the mountain. But ladies and gentlemen, we serve a living God who refuses to be contained on the mountain. For the transfiguration is rich in imagery drawn from the Old Testament. And Luke makes several important theological points. The first point deals with the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared to to Jesus. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. Both are significant because both are described in the Old Testament in ways that point toward the end of time. Thus, Moses and Elijah appear to verify that Jesus' presence signals the nearness of the end. Here we have Peter quickly responding, thinking, I have to do something, anything. So he immediately asks to build a tabernacle, to build a tent, to build a booth for each of them. Peter wants to build something that is meaningful. Peter wants to remember this amazing religious experience forever. This concept of building the tabernacle is in reference to God being indeed up on the mountain. Many New Testament scholars suggest that Peter's response to what is quite literally an epiphany of God is completely authentic and understandable within his religious tradition. Peter wishes to make a booth, a tent, a tabernacle, more than likely referencing the Jewish festival of tabernacles, by which to offer lodging to these three significant historic figures. In addition, Peter wants to preserve this event. He wants to capture something of this magical moment. And yet all the while, while Peter is planning and plotting and speaking these things, he is interrupted by God. This is my son. My chosen. Listen to him. It's almost as if God is saying, Peter, chill. Focus on Jesus. And listen to him. I'm not just up here on the mountain, but I'm always with you. 
Jesus will look normal again. Moses and Elijah are going to disappear, and you're going to go back down the mountain soon. And it's going to get hard. There's a significantly challenging journey ahead of you all. In fact, you're going to Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus is going to be arrested, tortured, and killed. But have no fear, his end is not the end. I will raise him from the dead. Peter, chill. You have a long, hard journey ahead of you, but you must listen to Jesus and trust in his word. And when all is over, when Moses and Elijah are gone, when the voice is quiet, when Jesus' face and clothing have returned back to normal, all the disciples have left. Whatever these signs and symbols may have meant, the disciples once again are with their Lord, their teacher, and their friend. And this is perhaps one of the signature characteristics of Luke's gospel. Jesus, the one whose clothes shine brightly, the one who controls the wind and the waves, the one equal to Moses and Elijah, the one whom the very heavens proclaim as God's own beloved son, this same one will offer them support in their time of need. One thing that really jumped out to me in this text is that the glory of God is only possible if lived together in community. Nobody, not even Jesus, shined alone. The story reminds us that it is only when we are together that God's radiance can light each of our lives. And we can only make sense of ourselves if the people who came before us, the Moseses and the Elijahs, are present in the midst of our struggles. For those who came before us give us a reminder that they survived in the name of God and we can too. Glory is only possible if shared, and that means that we are to share the light of Christ to the world, especially those placed in the shadows of society. You see, the shadow or cloud in which Jesus, Moses, and Elijah disappear into carries the voice of God affirming and in that way, when we light the lives of those placed in the shadows of society, we must know that it is from those shadows, it is from those clouds that the voice of God appears, affirming who Jesus is. So when all else fades, when the shadows seem to overwhelm us, all that is left is Jesus, reaching out, health, and in healing. Many of us have had these mountaintop experiences and can testify to their importance in our lives. But all of us, every single one of us, has also had to return to the valley. At both places, in all those in between, Jesus is there reaching out to raise us to new life again. Shortly after the transfiguration, on their way back down the mountain, Jesus and his disciples encounter something strange. A man approaches Jesus. This man's son is possessed by a demon. 
he tells Jesus that his disciples had tried to heal him, but they could not. And he tells Jesus that he needs Jesus' healing. And here we have a boy. This boy appears to be in psychological, social, and physical chains. For the demons have taken hold of his life. And the disciples were not powerful enough, or not transformed enough, or maybe not transfigured enough to heal the boy. And Jesus seems to have very little patience with them. And maybe that's why Jesus turns to them and says, You faithless and perverse generation. It seems that if Jesus had the expectations that after the moment on the mountain with him, that his disciples, Peter, James, and John, could have done the healing, it would seem that Jesus would believe that his disciples are supposed to be healers. And if the disciples then are supposed to be healers, Jesus' disciples today are supposed to be healers as well. For this boy appears to be in psychological social, and physical chains. The demons have taken a hold of his life. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we are honest with one another, our world is doing the same thing. Our world is dashing the poor against the rocks of despair, hunger, and abandonment every single day. The economic beast controlled by the few demons is making our people convulse day in and day out. The homeless, the immigrant, the incarcerated, those mothers who work three jobs to make minimum wage to feed their three or four kids, they are like the boy thrown into the shadows of our society, convulsing day and night right in front of us. And what do we do? Like Peter, we ask if maybe we could just build some tents and dwell in our worship spaces a little bit longer. Maybe we could bask in God's glory away from all the struggling people and their pressing needs. Unless we get out of our sacred worship unless we rebuke the unclean spirits of the powers that be, unless we shed light into the lives of the poor of our communities, we will never know what transfiguration means. Our sentences will be, what does transfiguration mean? The glory of God will be an unknown experience to us. For the world is falling apart. Our world is dashing the poor against the rocks of despair, hunger, and abandonment every single day. And we're more concerned with building tents, isolating ourselves from their suffering. The glory of God will be an unknown Just finished reading a book, Running with the Horses, by Eugene Peterson. And I read it with a couple other Nazarene pastors in the district. And, and in this book, he says these words toward the end. He says, reaching out is an act of wholeness, not only for others, but for us. For it takes a whole world to understand a whole Christ. 
crossing boundaries and exploring horizons demonstrates God's universal love, but it also develops our own deepest health. For we cannot be enclosed in our own habits, even if they are pious habits. Peterson continues, we often betray this reality. We huddle and we retreat. We ignore and even despise others. We collect a few friends who look alike and think alike, and we reject any suggestion that we transcend biological comforts and psychological securities. We barricade ourselves from the visions that expose our prejudices and from the people that challenge our narcissism. Meanwhile, there are people who keep showing up at our homes and communities and churches, who go beyond the boundaries of what is safe and comfortable. People who learn new languages, discover alien cultures, brave hostility and misunderstanding, who have the scars to tell the stories that prove that the life of faith can be lived in every place and among all people, and that the life of faith must be lived in every place, among all people. For if we want to encounter God's glory, we must come down from the mountain. We gather to scatter. Let us not build tents that isolate ourselves from the outsiders, but may we be the tents of God's presence to those living in the shadows. Peterson said, we barricade ourselves from the visions that expose our prejudices and from the people that challenge our narcissism. May we not barricade ourselves from the sick and the suffering, from the broken, from the hurt. God, use us as the tabernacle, as the very people that God resides in, sharing the love and peace of Christ in the world. And lest we get out of our sacred worship services, unless we rebuke the unclean spirits of the powers that be, unless we shed light into the lives of the poor in our communities, we will never know what transfiguration means. The glory of God will be an unknown experience. Earlier we sang, show me your glory. We don't just ask that we would see that glory here in a worship service, but that as we leave this place, as we walk out these doors, as we bring light to the darkness, that we would encounter the fullness of God's May our lives not be about building tents and barricading ourselves from outsiders. But may we indeed be the tents, bringing life, bringing hope, bringing healing, and bringing holiness.